Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, let's go back to my high school days. All right. For some memories. Yes. And I think I might have mentioned this on other podcasts. I'm not sure. Probably because it was kind of a big part of my high school career was my membership in the Future Homemakers of America. Yes. And I remember, you know, back then I didn't, I wasn't hip to, you know, feminist writings and, uh, and the like. I was not, it was not the stuff mom never told you host you see before you today. But even then, like the name rubbed me the wrong way. The homemaker part? The homemaker part. I loved the organization. I did so many cool projects with them. I went to national conventions and I was on national committees. And, um, you know, one, it was a really big part of my high school experience. I'm really glad I did it. So what kind of projects did you do, though? I'm just curious. Did you just make, did you sew things? Well, I did um, competitive events, of which there were a wide array to choose from. You could do um, a baking project. You could do a fashion project. I always did community service projects. Um, taught some little kids to read. Aww. Helped them improve their uh, scores that year. I'm very proud to report. Very nice. Um, but I was really relieved when they changed the name right before my senior year of high school from Future Homemakers of America to Family Career Community Leaders of America. Oh, that does sound a lot more legit. Because I thought that looked better on college resumes. Um, and also I remember, you know, to be a member of FHA, you had to take the family and consumer science classes. Um formerly known as home ec. And even when I was telling my friends, you know, next period I've got foods and nutrition or next period I've got my sewing class or next period I've got um, parenting and child development. It always felt weird to say that because, you know, you just, you had this thing that you really, you shouldn't be learning this. You should be worried about your career and not staying at home. You know, even then I kind of knew that there was something stigmatized about, um, these skills, even though I would get in parenting and child development, you'd learn all these cool things about child psychology and biology of how a baby develops in the womb. And it was a really cool class, but I just remember being really embarrassed. I was taking it and, uh, 
I wanted to kind of dive into why Helmec has this stigma around it because for for being such a cool organization and being uh, some of the best classes I took in high school, I was really kind of embarrassed to be a future Helmec of America and be taking Helmec. Sure, because from my perspective, obviously we know that I was homeschooled, haha. <laughs> um, but I actually did go to high school, high school in a building outside of my home. Um, and, Your garage. Uh, and <laughs> jokes. Um, and we did not have any sort of home ec um, curriculum. And so, so from my perspective, home ec seemed like, yeah, uh, classes you go to to become June Cleaver. Yeah. You know, you learn how to sew up an apron so that you can put it on and make your man some meatloaf, which, I mean, I like meatloaf. Uh, but you're right. I think there is a major stigma about home ec and the whole idea of the Becky home eckies. And yeah. then when you get to college, it's the same group of women who we refer to as the, oh, they're just going to get their MRS degree. But I think it's unfortunate because when we go back and we look at the history of home ec and family and consumer sciences, the women who pioneered home economics are pretty awesome. They are so amazing. I want to go back to high school and just tell all the kids in those classes to worship at their altar because it's such a cool discipline when you look at it from a historical perspective and um, now I'm really proud of my participation in it. Yeah, it's it's an interesting discipline to go back and study. It also, from our perspective, because we talk a lot about feminism, and this is one example when second wave feminism might not have really been helping out the women too much. I'm going to go as far as say they got it wrong. I think, yeah, Homek feminists, you got it wrong. So let's let's go back to to the early days. You got to remember that kitchens were not always a given. Right. You got to remember that like having a sewing machine was a luxury. Grocery stores uh-uh. didn't exist. And so I think that, you know, you've got to remember that that is the environment in which the discipline of home economics sprung up. It was really teaching women how to do things when they had no tools to do them. So in 1841, we have a landmark book written by Catherine Beecher, who was, fun fact, the half-sister of Harriet Beecher Stowe. She wrote the treatise on domestic economy for the use of young ladies at home. And it was all about the importance of keeping a healthy, clean home and applying scientific principles to child rearing, cooking and housekeeping. And at the same time, she's also advocating for the education of young women. Because at first we might think, whoa, Beecher, uh, young ladies at home. How about young ladies out of the home? Okay. But that's the kind of knee-jerk feminist reaction that kind of gave home ec its bad rep. Yeah. I mean, at some point, everyone has to go home. Yeah. Even if you're a high-powered executive breaking the glass ceiling in a Fortune 500 company, at some point, you have to have a home. And I love this idea of science behind uh, domestic arts, I guess, mm-hmm. is, um, you know, this book is sort of the first uh, publication of many that would follow that are like, you know, at some point, someone's got to clean this house. Someone's got to get a, a meal on the table. Someone's going to have to clothe everybody. What are the most efficient economic um, things to do it? And why do we do it? You know, why do we need to clean up the place where we cook our food? It had like germ theory and bacteriology in it. It was all about uh, the most scientific ways to do things. And then in 1862, we have the passage of the Morrill Act, which established land-grant colleges in each state. And this was really important because this also supplied federal funding at these colleges for, quote-unquote, mechanic 
arts. Because prior to that time, going to college meant you were going to go learn the classics. Right. And you were going to become a minister or a doctor or yeah. a lawyer. More of a liberal artsy bookish kind of education. But this really recognized the fact that you had all of this, uh, all of the, these people out in um, more agricultural lands that needed more practical skills. And as part of that, they extended funding for women who were allowed to go to these land-grant colleges. That was another great thing about these schools was that they actually admitted women. And so this these mechanic arts were extended to household management skills for farmers' wives. Because while the farmers were out in the fields, the wives had a lot to do to not only take care of the house, but also, I mean, the household chores were pretty intensive at that point. And remember, this is, you know... We're just starting now to get kitchens and kitchen uh, apparatuses, I guess. And so, you know, there are cooking schools, even in the urban locations like Boston. There are these cooking schools that are so in demand so people can learn, you know, how to feed their family healthfully. Right, because we don't have refrigerators at this point. This was one thing I didn't think about until I was reading this. It, you know, it's nice to be able to just throw throw your groceries in the fridge and call the day. They didn't have those kind of things. So you have, you know, back issues with bacteria. Um, sickness is really prevalent at this point. It's very easily spread throughout households because sanitation, we really have not gotten the hang of it yet. And then in 1899, we have the first Lake Placid Conference, which is led by this really amazing woman named Ellen Richards, who was a graduate of Vassar, and she kind of weaseled her way into MIT. They didn't want to admit her because she was a woman. Yeah, but she was like, I'll go anyway. And uh, and, and so, by the way, I'll earn a degree in chemistry. In chemistry. And so she organizes the Lake Placid Conference, which coins the term home economics. And Richards really gets involved in this movement, as do many of these early pioneers, because they do have these backgrounds in science. You know, she has a chemistry degree and she can't get a job because it was already a struggle enough to get the chemistry degree. Surely no university is going to hire a a woman scientist. But she kind of, again, weasels her way into MIT and says, why don't you just give me a lab just for women and I'll teach them. I'll teach them some things. Mm -hmm. And so they really see it as this this way to get women into education and then into higher education and then into the workforce. And so out of these Lake Placid conferences comes sort of what this, what this field of home economics is going to cover. It's going to cover everything from, um, industrial design, um, applied arts, uh, food and nutrition, child rearing, child rearing, um, basically everything that's going to surround you in your home. You're going to have mastery over if your chair if the weaving on it breaks, you're going to be able to fix it. And it even applies to things outside of the home, such as industrial management um, that gives us school lunch programs and uh, ergonomics, you know, from the, the types of chairs that we sit in today, kind of going you know, down the road. Uh, home economists are to thank for our comfy chairs that we sit in at our comfy cubicles. Oh, I wish. Uh, but then going back to Lake Placid, it also forms the umbrella organization in 1908, the American Home Economics Association. And so they're really starting to organize and get home ec into the leading colleges and universities at the time. And yes, they were, uh, this, these ideas were mainly being developed to, to give to the women. I think that's when we come down the road, that's going to be the problem that feminists have with this with this field is that it's women teaching other women how to be homemakers. 
but it's before the homemaker takes on the stigma of a woman who's been kept down by a man and can't leave the house. I mean, that was just her role back then. And it was like, if you are going to have to make a cake and uh, keep your family from getting sick and make socks for everyone, what are the most you know efficient ways to do it? And it was it was so that you would see it as an art. You would be like, oh, today I'm going to you know, make my art of baking a cake. It was taking this pride in a job well done, and it was teaching how to do the best job you can do. Now, how did that translate to a class? You know, all these first classes are in um, colleges, and Cornell had one of the first programs, one of the most famous programs. And I think my favorite thing I learned about, Kristen, were the practice apartments. Oh, yeah. So to give these home ex students a chance to put what they learn in the classroom into practice beginning in the early 1900s a lot of collegiate programs started up practice apartments and practice homes to learn the quote mother craft which they referred to which they uh used to describe the scientific art of child rearing okay and in 1919 they start bringing in practice babies to these practice apartments so that the women can really observe the science of child rearing. Now, when you say practice babies, you might think of, you know, those fake babies that you get in high school and you got to take it home for a week and uh, pretend that it's real and stuff. No, no, no. These are real babies, okay? They went to area orphanages and child wel- welfare associations, picked up some babies, <laughs> brought them back to the practice apartments. In 1919, the first practice baby was named Dickie Domicon for domestic economy. And Dickie Domicon was raised for the first year of his life at Cornell. And the best part about this, uh, these practice babies were that they were actually highly coveted yeah. by people who were looking to adopt because they were raised in this highly scientific and sanitary environment. They had the best first year of life possible. Yeah. I mean, imagine getting to learn you know, seeing how every study that you're learning about in class affects a real child. Now, let's not get into the potential ethical issues around borrowing babies. You know, no one, it was unclaimed at the moment. But that's, I think it's a great example, though, of just how serious these home ec programs were. And as one uh, essay I read put it, you know, it's it's showing women that you go to school and you take care of a child. It's not saying you're taking care of a child 24-7, this is your life. It's more like, okay, I've got to do all this, and then I'm going to come home to my practice home, and I'm going to use these newest, newfangled theories on this child. It was, was, I think it's one of the first examples of balancing, Mm -hmm. of teaching a woman to balance work and family. And also, uh, when it comes to, say, examining how to manage your home better, uh, we might think that that's something that's going to keep women back. Why do we need to teach them how to become better domestic workers. But at the same time, I think it was pretty valuable back then because they didn't have all of the modern luxuries that we have today. And so it actually did take just as much time, if not more, as a guy going off to work for the day for a woman to take care of her home. So in these home management courses, students would actually take time and motion studies that were developed in industrial settings and apply them 
to household tasks such as food prep, dishwashing, and laundry to figure out how to do it in far more efficient ways with the goal of freeing up women's time to get them out of the house. Now, Betty Friedan would come back and say, no, you're just building up the feminine mystique and keeping women in the home. But at the same time, I think that I think that those messages might have gotten uh, misinterpreted along the way by second wave feminists. Well, and let's where are the men in all this? The fact of the matter is, is that at Cornell, there was something called the marriage course that was one of the most popular courses between among men and women. And uh, it was a, a course, as it says on marriage. But let me read you the description from the course catalog, Kristen, because okay. parts of it I did not think sounded that indifferent from Minty. All right. Here we go. A course dealing with the social and economic changes which today are influencing the relations of men and women before and after marriage, scientific information which has promoted the study of mate choice and marital adjustment, the development of affection in the individual and the achievement of heterosexuality, substitutes for mate love and the adjustment of the single person, the choice of a mate, courtship and engagement, the nature of the marriage relationship, and factors which influence adjustment to this relationship, adjustments to parenthood. It taught people how to have a family life, and these are the issues we're still grappling with today. Right, and not surprisingly, at the time, this course was highly controversial on campus, but the students loved it. The students loved it because someone talked honestly to them. Uh, the professor who taught it, uh, Lemo Rockwood, she got in trouble with the school because she was basically saying the girls' dorms don't have enough, you know, privacy for courting to go on. Mm-hmm. Courting meaning sex. She was fairly, she was aware that this was something that was going on that people wanted to do before they made this choice. And if they're going to do it, she was going to teach them how to use that information to find the best mate possible. And, you know, that's what we're still struggling to do is to teach kids how to do that. And here's someone who in the early 1900s is like, here's all this complicated information about men and women. Here's the science behind it. I like to think maybe she was the forerunner of of old Sminty. (laughs) Well, aside from the child rearing and mating and food preparation and, and cleaning your home, there are certain aspects, too, of these early home ec courses of of study that we might not really think about. For instance, back in the day when all this was going on, there were major public health issues such as tuberculosis, influenza, typhoid, pneumonia, and diphtheria. And a lot of this was being spread and perpetuated because of unsanitary conditions at home. So one healthy byproduct of home ec was actually looking into hygiene and sanitation and getting, uh, you know, antibiotics developed and more sanitary practices for food preparation and all those kind of things that led to healthier communities. And the home economics program really kind of saved our butt in the wars because people didn't know how to deal with these food shortages. And in World War One, home economists uh, joined the war effort to educate people about nutritional substitutes for rationed foods. They come back again during the Great Depression and teach people about canning and about victory gardens and about how to, you know, sustain your family when things are bad. But while all of this is happening, this rise of home ec, we have the passage of the Smith-Hughes Act in 1917. And on the one hand, it was a good, a good move for home ec because they started getting a lot more federal funding. But as part of the Smith-Hughes Act, they had to link home ec closer to 
vocational training. It was basically an earmark in order to get these federal funds. But that also meant that instead of really being able to focus all of the attention um, in these collegiate programs and, you know, to apply things out to industry and really make it a respected science, it became more linked to vocational training and training for high school. So you have more women who are taking these courses just so that they can teach girls in high school how to sew and cook and clean. And I think that that's something that disturbs some people in the field to the day is that, you know, Ellen Richards envisioned every woman who studied home economics to be a scientist, not necessarily a teacher of this type of science. And so some people think that it really got watered down when it, it would take, when it took that move to high school. And in combination with that, you've got after the wars, the consumer craze where you can get mass produced goods for the first time. And a lot of women who had been sort of the movers and shakers in that field move into that field and work for corporations thinking that they can really, you know, help design products and the composition of products, even the packaging in ways that are going to be the most effective, most efficient for women. Sometimes they get stuck in the consumer relations role mm-hmm. so that, you know, if a housewife calls up, they just put her on the phone with another woman to, to calm her down. There are some women who made, you know, really cool um, advances as their roles. Uh, like they talk about Lucy Moppy, who ran the test kitchen at Corning Glass, and she helped prevent Pyrex based on feedback. Um, there's another woman named Mary Ingle Pennington who promoted the new Household Refrigeration Bureau so that she could, you know, you could call her up and say, which refrigerator is going to work best for my family? So it's it's kind of uh, around the 1950s, it's kind of splintering a little bit from this pure uh, program of study to uh, applications in the field that kind of water it down, which I think makes it the perfect target for the feminist movement. Right, and I think we also have to note, too, that with this army of brilliant home economists doing all this work in the background, just kind of like it still is today, they were not getting paid nearly as much as the men in similar levels and companies as they were at the time and were highly unrecognized. We still have um, the, you know, the men who were receiving a lot of the recognition for those kinds of advances because they were the ones at the top of the companies at the time. And with the rise of second wave feminism, we have a major backlash against home ec. But what I found most interesting was that uh, the Home Economic Association invited prominent feminists like Betty Friedan and Robin Morgan to speak at their conventions because they considered themselves feminists. They sure. thought that they were empowering women to do their job the best that they could do. And, you know, someone like Robin Morgan comes into the 1972 convention and says, well, I'm a feminist here addressing the enemy. And, uh, you know, it was very shocking to them. And, you know, they took it seriously. Uh, the president at the time, Marjorie East, responded, if home economics does indeed perpetuate this traditional limited concept of women, we may have some rethinking to do. It's not like these women were fighting to keep women in the kitchen. They thought that they were, and I think they were, like I said, empowering women to do the best that they could do with the tools they had. Right. And, and saving time. I think when you look back to at the story of, uh, of Betty Crocker, for instance, you have her whole persona because back in the day, uh, people thought that Betty Crocker was an actual person. Lo and behold, it's 
just the brand as we know now. Uh, but it was all these home economists who were developing all these recipes and all of these mixes for different things that they thought were, would be great because it would save women time and get them out of the kitchen. Mm-hmm. But by the time we get to second wave feminism, you know, obviously the revolution hasn't happened. A lot of women are still stuck in the kitchen or stuck at home. You've got the Betty Drapers, you know, and, uh, but then there are also women who want to be there. Right. And I think that, you know, that's a whole topic for another podcast is how we view women who stay at home. But I just think that whether you're staying at home full time or whether you're working and working full time, at the end of the day, everyone has to have a home. And everyone's got to have a kitchen, whether you're a man or a woman. And I think that that's where um, the attacks by the feminists on this department are kind of dangerous because... As a result, kids don't want to take those classes. Even I felt embarrassment about taking them because you do think, oh, this is just wife 101. Right. And we aren't recognizing the valuable contributions of these women who not only were the first women going out and getting college degrees and diving into the very male-dominated sciences, you know, but the women who were giving us advances in public health and sanitation and food preparation. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, the, you know, the whole, you know, you could argue that the whole food prep issue has now backslid into fast food and unhealthy processed foods that are making us obese. But that's a point Jennifer Grossman makes in an editorial in the New York Times is that we do live in a culture of obesity now. What do we need more than ever? But the science behind food right. so that, you know, a kid can grow up and learn, okay, I've got the choice between a Big Mac and something else. Here's what I know about the Big Mac and here's what I know about, you know, a salad. Right. And understanding how to prepare that salad how or to prepare whatever it. it is. And if you are going to eat a hamburger, learning about the most, you know, healthy, learning about the healthiest, most economical way to make a hamburger. Mm-hmm. These are not skills that are bad in and of themselves, which I think was sort of the attack made by feminists is that if we never teach girls how to sew, they can't stay home and sew. Right. But everyone's going to get a hole in their sock. Right. I think that feminists may have misinterpreted the spirit behind the original home ec. You know, Ellen Richards, who graduated from Vassar and weaseled her way into MIT. Uh, I don't, I don't know how feminists could say that she was not, you know, standing up for the cause. I know. And so I think, but I think it's interesting, uh, you know, when we were researching this podcast, we obviously spent a lot of time on the historical stuff, which was made possible, I should note, by a book that was written called Stir It Up, uh, that was covered pretty extensively, uh, by Bust and some other articles. And that's what we're using for our historical source material. But if you look at articles about home economics, or as it's called now, family and consumer sciences, and this idea of homemaking today, you can tell that the field is still really shaken up by these attacks they sustained by the feminists because even in trend pieces about, you know, how crafting is back or how canning is back mm-hmm. and all these people want to learn about these traditional arts, you know, the, the writers of these pieces take great pains to separate it from this traditional idea of homemaking. It's got to be retro or ironic or hipster. It's not a recognition that there is science behind what we do in our homes. Whereas an article from the Chronicle of Higher Education points out that family and consumer sciences is responsible for doing things like designing the comfortable desk chairs and safer fabrics for firefighters, looking at connections between cancer and foods, biodegradable fibers, social welfare programs, all of these things, which we might not link it to home ec because it's now called family and consumer sciences, but we have 
Home Ec to really thank for it. Mm-hmm. So I do think that it's it's kind of um, sad that I was so embarrassed about it and that the numbers drop. You know, a lot of the stories from the past few years also make this big point to say, well, boys take our classes, too. As if, you know, getting boys in the class will just make it somehow gender neutral mm-hmm. and, and all right, which is good because everyone needs these skills. But still this, um, idea that homemaking is somehow bad or that returning to this idea of, you know, making your own clothes or, or making yourself a good meal is somehow, you know, hipster and ironic. And if you wear an apron while you do it, it's, it's damaging to the entire female population is something that, it's one legacy of feminism that is slightly uncomfortable. Yeah. So let's hear from you guys. Did you take home ec? Do you, what do you think about home ec? Uh, let us know your thoughts on it. Or are you in family and consumer sciences today? Let's hear from you. It's mom stuff at howstuffworks.com. And in the meantime, we got a couple emails here. Molly, before we get into listener mail, I want to let everyone know that HowStuffWorks.com has a brand new app available for the iPhone. For everyone on the go. Yes. It's just an easy way to get everything while you're traveling. You can get HowStuffWorks.com articles, videos, and of course, podcasts. There might be some pictures of us. Perhaps some photos. Um, some hopefully flattering photos. I don't know. So for all those people who like to push phones while they're you know waiting in line... On buses, mm-hmm. not while you're driving. That's unsafe. Don't, yeah, don't, don't app while you drive. But for everyone else, we got a great app. Check it out. And now let's get back to listener mail. So I've got an email here from Paul, and it's about uh, the doll podcast. He writes, "I'm a boy, and I play with dolls as a small kid. The only difference is that instead of being Cabbage Patch, they were GI Joes. I put guns in their hands, bought them cars to drive around in. Well, I begged my cars for, begged my parents for cars anyway." and told all kinds of wonderful imaginary stories with my dolls. I insisted and still do publicly that these were not dolls, but action figures instead. Deep down, I know the truth, though. Action figures are nothing more than dolls that boys play with. Well, I've got an email here from Mary, and it is in response to a podcast we did a while ago on polycystic ovary syndrome, the acronym which is PCOS, which Molly referred to throughout the podcast as PCOS. And Mary was very upset because apparently we were the only people in the known world pronouncing it as PCOS. And we certainly do not want to misrepresent polycystic ovary syndrome. It's something that is highly underreported when it comes to women's health, yet is affecting a lot of women, and it's very difficult sometimes to get an accurate diagnosis. So these symptoms, you know, are often rage on for women because they can't find proper treatment. So the last thing we want to do is call it by the wrong thing. So Mary says, it really hurts my feelings when you mispronounce PCOS, as I feel like the way you pronounce it is making fun of me and my peers. I know it's not your intention, but please try to be a little more sensitive. Instead of the blanket, I think you should be able to call it whatever you want. Let's leave it at that. And so we certainly don't want to leave it at that. So from here on out, PCOS will now be PCOS. So Molly, let's join the rest of the medical world and call it by its acronym. I would like to point out that the New York Times said that it was pronounced PCOS. All right. So Mary, you did ask for our source and there it is. Molly says New York Times. All right. So if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email, momstuff at howstuffworks.com or throw it up on our Facebook wall. Or you can give us a shout out on Twitter 
And then finally, if you want to read what Molly and I are writing about during the week, head over to our blog. It's Stuff I've Never Told You, and it's at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.